I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. As you would do if you had nothing better to do. That's you right. S- you still can't just say it. No, because every time I say, say it, it. Well, part of it is that's the way we do our intro. Yes, it is. But the other part is, no, is. I keep thinking I'm saying it right, but I always say it wrong. And today we're in lovely... Belgrade, Maine. And we're overlooking the work of a pileated woodpecker. Two of them. Just taking that tree right Which apart. people on Facebook kept saying, those are, what were they saying, mostly in the South? No, a couple people said they had seen them in Florida, but oh. I had read in my Audubon field guide, well, they are native to Florida, they're not, or Exclusive. the American South. No, that oh. they're not often seen there oh, that's as much as they are in the Northeast, but two people on Facebook mentioned they saw them in Florida. Oh, also, numerous people, after I said in my post it was a pileated woodpecker, had to tell me it was a pileated woodpecker. Well, they don't read anything. It shows that people don't. I had actually seen one before at work when I was not at work. The woodpecker was at work pecking. I was walking in the woods with Eric and Hannah when it, Hannah was probably about two, I don't know, <sighs> in Palmel. And I kept hearing this noise. Yeah, it sounds like a, not a jackhammer, but it sounds like some kind of a, a tool, like someone's using a power tool. Right. I hear him here often. And right? I looked up uh, and there it was. So we looked at it and he was working away. And- and here's the irony. That's a great story. But, oh, um, fuck you. Here's the irony that there used to be hundreds of trees in that lot across from my house and the people from away, or at least from the Portland area, but I think originally from away, who own the property and are here on weekends and in the summer, took down hundreds and hundreds of trees. So now it's like a field with a bunch of trees in it. And I bet you they freak out more about those woodpeckers pecking on that tree. And woodpeckers only do that to dead trees. Because there's a giant pile of sawdust oh, and stuff. It's crazy. I bet they freak we out more. We can post it on our website. Maybe I will. I bet they freak out more about that, even though they took down hundreds of trees over there, and now I can hear every friggin' car that goes by on mm-hmm. the Main uh, Street. Anyways. Should we get right into our story today? Yes. I decided, after we saw the documentary we talked about last time, Killing for Love, the German documentary about the Jens Soaring case, Jens Soaring, Jan Soaring, sorry, Germans, that I would do that one. Because, also because a friend of ours... I was gonna bring it up. I just didn't want you to take credit. We... Well, I'm going to take credit for the next fucking three hours I'm going to be talking about it. Get ready, everybody. Our friend Barb Ross, who's a fellow Maine crime writer, she listens to our podcast. Hi, Barb. And after we talked about the documentary and gave it our NNW rating, she sent me some links to a New Yorker story, to two New Yorker stories about the case. So that was episode 39, if you want to hear Barb talk about her mystery novels. She was great. So those two New Yorker articles, one which was extremely lengthy and written in 2015, I got some information from. I also got some information from a true crime TV show that... I saw on YouTube, and I have no idea what show it was or when it was made. I'm going to say it was probably made in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Not totally sure, just by the styles and the people. Some of my information is based on the documentary Killing for Love, which in German was The Promise, which apparently was a six-part BBC show, too. But I didn't rewatch it. 
I didn't take notes while we were watching it. So I have some general stuff from there. And I also got some other sources. So here I go. On April 30th, 1986, police in London arrested a couple they believed to be a couple of Canadian students. They'd been passing bad checks in Marks and Spencer stores, which for those of you who don't know, is a big department store chain over there. And what they were doing was buying items with bad checks, then returning them before the checks bounced. And this was 1986, so it was before the widespread use of debit cards and that, and people wrote checks for those younger listeners who may not realize that. And checks took a while to to clear. Yes, they did. The police soon found out the two weren't Canadian students, Tara and Christopher No, as they claimed and as their ID showed, but Elizabeth Hasem of Lynchburg, Virginia, and Jan Soring, a German national. It's not clear what led them to figure out who they were, but maybe it was the huge amount of checks the pair had kited, totaling in thousands and thousands of dollars. Police searched their apartment, and that's how they found out who they were. Our U.S. listeners may be surprised to learn that in Britain, at least in 1986, I don't know what the law is now, cops didn't need probable cause to search someone's apartment. If you're arrested in the U.S. for check kiting, that's not probable cause to search your apartment. The cops would have to get a warrant from a judge, outline why it's important to look in the apartment, and basically that they would find evidence of a crime there or find somebody to arrest there. And that's a simplification of it. That's how it works here, and it's based on the Fourth Amendment to our Constitution. They don't have... There's a reason we fought the Revolution and wrote that thing up. No offense, British listeners. No offense, British listeners. So anyway... I just want to say, too, I just want to break in because, you know... Okay. Um, I don't see how check kiting is a sustainable way to make a living... Well, it was a very complicated... Although, I'm sorry. I'm just saying. It was a pretty sophisticated and complicated way of doing it. I don't know that these two kids were necessarily, like many young people, were thinking of yeah, a sustainable life, but kind of living their little romantic dream for the moment. Mm-hmm. I'm simplifying what they were doing, but actually they did some research into it, and they had made a mistake that they were never going to go to the same clerk twice or be in the same place together twice, and they made a mistake in a store where a clerk saw them together and they both did it or something. The clerk alerted, by some accounts, an off-duty cop, by some accounts, a plainclothes cop. Again, this is another thing where information varies. And he went and got them and arrested them. So one of the things found in their apartment were letters between the two in which a murder in the U.S. was referenced. And that's another thing, guys. Don't keep your letters. But in which a murder in the U.S. was referenced. Don't write shit down, people. And they also referenced Virginia cops Ricky Gardner and Chuck Reed. Well, one reason people wrote things down was because this was before there was wide use of smartphones which know, didn't exist email still, the internet in any medium don't write things down right like don't text them don't email them right things that could implicate you in a crime there's other things you should write <laughs> but wait but like so anyways one of their letters referenced virginia cops ricky gardner and chuck reed and so a london cop calls ricky gardner ricky. and there are various accounts of how the conversation went down but it was basically did you have a murder there and are you looking for elizabeth Hasem and Jan soaring and gardner on the tv crime documentary says i thought someone was playing a real bad joke on me but he's a doofus but, but he's a doofus but yes they were looking for elizabeth Hasem and Jan soaring in fact he and his partner chuck reed had hit a dead end in the double murder of elizabeth's parents derek and nancy Hasem of lynchburg that had taken place 13 months before 
That dead end came when Soaring and Haysom fled the country the previous October. On April 3, 1985, a little over a year before they were caught in London, Annie Massey had arrived at her best friend Nancy Haysom's house to play bridge with two other women and Nancy's husband, Derek. No one answered her knock, which was odd. The outside light was on, even though it was daylight, which was also odd. The cars were in the driveway. The door was locked, but Massey, being Nancy's best friend, had a key to the house. Mm. And so she let herself in. Derek Hasem was lying on the living room floor, covered in blood, with dried blood pooled all around him. It's not clear if she went farther into the house. Ugh. But when police came, they found Nancy Hasem in the living room, in, I'm sorry, in the kitchen, also covered with and surrounded by blood. Derek, 72, was originally from South Africa and had made his money in the steel industry. Nancy was 53. It was a second marriage for them both. Nancy had a son, Howard, who was a doctor in Texas, and if I get some of this family stuff wrong, it's because nothing I read or saw was really clear on who the people were, mm-hmm. but this is as accurate as I can get it. She had a son, Howard, who was a doctor in Texas. I've seen references to him as Howard Hasem in some articles, but he he wasn't Derek Hasem's biological son. I don't know if the articles are inaccurate or if Derek adopted him. They had been married at this point for 24 years. He was, may have. Been, uh, if she was, was probably young. Yeah. yeah. Derek himself had three children, all of whom lived in Canada. The pair met in South Africa. They married in 1960, and the one child they had together, their daughter Elizabeth, was born in 1964. By the time they retired to Lynchburg in 1981 in a house they dubbed Loose Chippings, which is a British reference apparently to a gravel driveway or something like that. Sorry again, Brits. Elizabeth, their daughter, had proved to be a handful and a half. She was educated mostly in Europe and at boarding schools, but had somehow blown her interview to get into Trinity University in Cambridge in England. And this is from the New Yorker article. He never elaborated on how she blew her interview, and I think that's just what she told him. So who knows? And for those of you not familiar, that's a pretty prestigious school. It would be comparable to an Ivy League school in the U.S., though I think more Cornell, Penn, or Brown than Harvard or Yale or Princeton if you get my drift. She also failed her A-levels, which after decades of reading British novels and kind of guessing at what they are, I finally looked up. Ah, you did. I finally looked them up. They are a test that people take when they graduate sixth form, which is comparable to our senior year in high school, I think, or 12th grade, that get them into a good school, kind of like the SATs that we have here in the U.S., There also used to be O-levels, though they call them something else Mm. now, and those are for, like, a lower, maybe not to get, those are just, like, exit tests where you're not trying to get into a university, and they changed the name of those to some acronym, but A stood for advanced, and O stood for ordinary. So now I know. And it's not too different from what I've been guessing at for decades, but it's nice to know. Anyway, Elizabeth had come to Virginia to live with her parents, She was a drug user, and she and her parents didn't get along. She had lesbian girlfriends, including one she took off, not that there's anything wrong with that, including one she took off across Europe with after high school, which seemed to irk her parents, as did her heavy drug use. Mm. She had a history of using drugs and dating boys that sold and dealt drugs, according to multiple sources. If you're using them, you might as well date someone that sells. Win-win. 
She apparently grudgingly went to the University of Virginia, which is not slumming. No and the re- shit. And the reason I say that is a couple of accounts made it sound like it was. Founded by Thomas Jefferson, it's considered one of the top public universities in the United States. Yeah. She was named an Eccles Scholar, which is a prestigious program for incoming students who show academic promise. She was a little older than her classmate. She was 20 when she entered the August of 1984. By some accounts, she met Jean Soaring at their orientation. He's a German national born in Thailand and was the son of a bureaucrat. It's not really clear what his father did. He'd lived in Atlanta since he was 11, but his parents had recently moved to Detroit, Michigan. So I'm not sure what... I mean, obviously his father was a... In that documentary, I thought someone said he was a diplomat, but they might have just been guessing. I had diplomat... And other places say bureaucrat, and it could be the same thing. I don't know enough about diplomacy, obviously, (laughs) (laughs) to know why a German diplomat would be stationed in Atlanta or even less likely in Detroit, Michigan. And yet, he was. So I don't know enough about it, and it's another rabbit hole I didn't want to go down. But anyway, when he entered college in August 1984 at UVA, Jean was 18 and bookish. In high school, he'd been editor of the school paper, involved in photography, played guitar in a garage band, won an art award, among other things. So he was, I would say, your basic, we knew kids like him in high school, we were kids like him in high school, you know, very smart kid, involved in some artsy kind of things. And I want to pause for a second to say most of the things I saw and read, he takes a much more of an arbitrary beating for his personality and his manner than Elizabeth does. Mm -hmm. In the TV show, the true crime TV show, author Ken England, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, who wrote a book about the case, says, quote, he was an immature 18-year-old, what would be described today as a geek. And um, I think we would have described it back in the 1980s as a geek. Too, I know. As someone who was, he had no personality. He was not attractive. He wore those hornroom glasses. Wow. You get the picture. And I mean about how people portrayed him, not about how he was. I assumed, I mean, from watching the documentary, not from what he said about himself as an adult, um, we didn't see much of something in court, but he was quiet. We'll be talking, yeah, I'll be talking more. He was shy and quiet. Right, I'll be talking more about that. In December, and I don't think they were totally dating at the time that they had become close friends, and they were both off on their Christmas breaks. Elizabeth went on a ski trip. Jan was in Michigan, but her letter to him said... And according to the New Yorker article, this letter is her confessing her love for him. And I'm going to read what it has here, and then I'm going to talk for a second about it, all right? I hated my love for you for a long time. And I can't do her pseudo-European accent, so I'm just going to... I hated myself for discovering vulnerability. But as the weeks passed, I began to understand. I had always believed that I made men fall in love with me so I could take out all the hatred I felt for them by Mm. humiliating them. I understand that. I despised their cheap lust and easy passions. (laughs) And in the end, I made them hate themselves for loving me and the torture I inflicted. I would make a man humiliate himself to obtain me, then I would give him the best fuck he's ever likely to get and then walk out. Mm. With Jan... (laughs) She explained it wasn't like that, according to New Yorker. I love you, and it may alter intensity and direction from time to time. In other words, I'll treat you like shit. That's more insane. But I will always love you with a part of me which no one else will be able to snatch. Now, is that a declaration of love? According to the New Yorker, it is, and maybe that's what she intended it to be. Though you realize 
it's all about her, nothing about him or what makes her love him. Yeah. And it's not obviously the whole letter, but it's pretty telling. And I feel like with a lot of her writings, it's her trying out certain affectations it's, of yeah, writing. Yeah, I was going to say, it's very, um, almost like It's more cliche. of her perception cliche. Yeah, such a badass. And, and also, men yes, and also it's her manipulating him. Join the club sister. Anyway, sometime around the new year, they the two started dating. And in the New Yorker article, writer Nathan, I think his name is Nathan Heller, said that Elizabeth, quote, felt herself falling for soaring. He did interview her, which comes out at the end of this lengthy, lengthy, lengthy article. And I think that's what she's telling people. But already having seen two documentaries and read a lot about the case, as well as listened to a two-hour interview with Jan, I thought it was an odd depiction of what really happened. In any case, most people saw it for what it most likely was, Hasem targeting a very naive, young-for-his-age man who could be, or boy in a lot of cases, he was 18, who could be easily manipulated and do her bidding. If that sounds harsh, you'll see why that fits. Over that same Christmas break, they traded letters. She wrote on December 21st, and again, her writing just seems to me kind of that affected youngish writing Mm -hmm. where you're trying to be dramatic, but... A day of raining loneliness. Hmm. This morning I built my father a desk for his computer. It took all morning. I didn't smoke. Then I went shopping. I bought cigarettes. I bought other things too. My father fell down. Then in parentheses, I prayed. He got up. My parents began to drink. My father says that the juniper extract used to flavor gin is a potent poison drug. It causes similar aggression as speed. My mother begins her sixth gin. I pray she'll use the poker on my cold, guiding father. (laughs) And then Soaring writes her, and the New Yorker says he's trying to channel her antic stream of consciousness. The way I look at it is he's trying to sound grown up and ironic. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's trying to channel what she's doing. But he says, were I to meet your parents, I have the ultimate quote-unquote weapon. Strange things are happening within me. I'm turning more and more into a Christ figure, a small imitation anyway, I think. I believe I could either make them completely lose their wits, get heart attacks, or they would become lovers in an agape kind of way of the rest of the world. So I think he's just speaking kind of metaphorically and... Trying to sound... Right. Sophisticated like her. So once they got back at school, they were seriously dating. And during spring break, Hasem went skiing in Colorado. Jan stayed in Charlottesville to finish some school projects. And according to the um, New Yorker, and this is kind of some of the description of him that I keep finding annoying, just this unnecessarily negativity. You remember, the kid was 18 years old. One was a screenplay for his creative writing class, and he acted the way he thought writers should. He perched at the typewriter in his underwear eating pizza. To me, that is the way writers act. I don't know. Yeah. He tried to smoke a cigarette. His screenplay was about a brilliant sleuth who used Zen philosophy to solve crimes, and as he typed scenes about corpses, clues, and exotic poisons, he filled a waste paper basket with discarded drafts. Just like Greg Brady. He was trying to plot the perfect murder. That's from The New Yorker. And then here's another thing that Elizabeth wrote to him. My mother went to her hair appointment three days late. My father and I cut down cedars for Christmas presents. Oh, so this was um, during Christmas break. Would it be possible to hypnotize my parents, do voodoo on them, will them to death? 
It seems my concentration on their death is causing them problems. My father nearly drove off a cliff at lunch. He nearly got squashed by a tree when he got home, and he keeps falling over. And my mother, drunk, fell into the fire. I think I shall seriously take up black magic. We can either wait till we graduate and then leave them behind, or we can get rid of them soon. Mm. My mother said today that if some accident befell them, she knew I would become a worthless adventurer. Hmm. More maternal acumen. Hmm. You know what this reminds me a little bit of? Is the episode about Michelle Carter and Conrad Roy. Yes, I was Where that. she yeah. manipulated yes. him into killing himself. That reminded me of And that too. so this is when their relationship is at its very beginning... And she's constantly hammering on him how she wants her parents dead. Yes. So on the weekend of March 29th, after the pair had been dating a little less than three months, they rented a car and took a trip to Washington, D.C. The reason they rented a car was that freshmen couldn't have cars on campus at UVA. And um, I know that question has risen is suspicious in some people's minds. But that's why they rented a car. And it sounds like Elizabeth rented cars frequently. She may not have had her own car Mm -hmm. at that point or something. In D.C., they checked into the Georgetown Marriott using a Visa card that belonged to Soaring's father. I assume his father gave it to him to use at college. They saw the movie Porky's Revenge, (laughs) something Soaring said in a 2011 interview he still regrets. They ate lunch, and they came home on Sunday. (laughs) I know, he has a sense of humor for a guy with no personality. At this point, by all accounts, Hasem's parents had been murdered by the time they came home Sunday. Since Soaring and Hasem lived on campus in Charlottesville, about 70 miles away from the Hasem's home, and all the other Hasem children were grown and living far away, no one raised the alarm until April 3rd when Annie Massey and her friends arrived to play bridge. Remember them? Yeah. (laughs) Getting around back to that now. The cops were shocked by what they saw, investigator Chuck Reed said. Derek had been stabbed 32 times. His throat slashed. Nancy's throat, too, had been slashed, and she had multiple stab wounds. The blood around Nancy was smeared like somebody had taken a towel and tried to wipe it Mm. all around her. There was also blood on the screen door handle and on a faucet upstairs. There were three footprints in the blood, or three bloody footprints, rather. One tennis shoe, and two that looked like a foot that had been wearing a sock. And the way they could tell it was wearing a sock is there were no, like, ridge lines. Like, if you look at your palm or your fingers. Oh, and your oh yeah. Print so lines. it looked like a footprint, but right, it didn't have a... Right. Yeah. The bottom of your foot, if you have bare feet, some of those ridge lines would show yeah. up in the blood. And these were just very basic footprints. Derek and Nancy had blood alcohol levels of 0.22. And as Ooh. an example of how high that is, the level that will get you know what... UI is .08 or a DWI, whatever you call it, where you live. So it's more than twice the legal limit. So I guess her letter writing about their drinking wasn't I don't doubt that they drank. That's true. There was no sign of forced entry and nothing was missing. So burglary was almost immediately ruled out. There were two settings at the table and still food on the plates, like they'd been interrupted during a meal. Police surmised that the killer or someone had sat with them at the table because a third chair was pulled out. Although in my house, that really wouldn't mean anything. Yeah, mine either. You know. But maybe their house was neater than mine. A shot glass in the living room with some vodka in it had both Derek and someone else's fingerprint, as did a nearby vodka bottle. Absolute vodka, mm. if you're, for those of you keeping score. Derek had apparently been initially attacked in the dining room, and a trail of blood led to his body in the living room. Nancy was killed, and I think there was a bloody handprint of his along a wall or somewhere like uh. he had tried to steady himself. Uh. Nancy was killed in the kitchen. Police initially said, and most crime scene analysts would agree because I looked it up, and also we've heard it in other cases, the fact that they were killed in separate rooms 
but both had apparently been together when the crime was committed, as opposed to one being upstairs in bed or walking in on a crime in progress or something, meant that there was likely more than one killer. Yeah. It's hard for one person to restrain two people during an attack like that. Because the footprints were different sizes, the police shortly after issued an APB for two men with a buck knife. Hmm. The murder weapon was never found. Ooh. The neighbors hadn't seen or heard anything, and Ricky Gardner, one of the investigators, (laughs) said on the TV show that after a week they had found no clues to connect anyone to the killings. Hmm. The blood was dry enough that, and the condition of the bodies was such that police believe they'd been killed March 30th or early on March 31st. The pair were well-liked, according to neighbors. No one could imagine why anyone would want to kill them. Family members were questioned, and Elizabeth, the only one living nearby, was asked to give fingerprint and footprint samples as well as a blood sample. And just a reminder, this was 1985, and they weren't even talking about DNA analysis regularly at murder scenes like this. Chuck Reed said later that the older children, Derek's children living in Canada, seemed reserved. Quote, it was like they didn't want to get involved. (laughs) Nancy's son, Howard, was the most cooperative. Elizabeth told police that she loved her parents very much, and they loved her. She'd had a great upbringing and a great relationship with them, and they always did what was best for her. She said a likely suspect would be her brother Julian <laughs> would be her brother Julian's ex-girlfriend Jane. She said her parents didn't like her and Julian had broken up with her and she blamed her parents for the breakup. Julian later said that his parents had in fact liked her and had been upset about the breakup, something that isn't reported in a lot of the places that report the other stuff. As a benefit to police, there are rumors she was in a cult. So it was a win-win for the cops. Oh jeez. The possibility of a cult killing had already come up because, of course, that's so much more likely than some psychopathic person who knows them killing them, right? Because both of their heads were pointed north. Oh, well, yeah. There was a cut on Derek's chin that that was shaped like a V. And the swirls around Nancy could mean something. Then Elizabeth brought up Jane. Chuck Reed says, so we thought maybe it is a cult killing because they had kind of dismissed it before. Mm-hmm. Of course, that set the well-heeled community, the suburban, leafy suburbs, I think they're always referred to, into even more hysteria. Mm. And I have to say here again, why are people so willing to believe, especially during the satanic panic days of the 80s and 90s, that cults would kill someone, but when presented with obvious evidence, and I'm not just talking about this case, but others, that someone who knows the people did it, they dismiss it. For, I know, it's weird. And Yeah, that's a rhetorical question. Oh, sorry. Cause, well, because I think people <laughs> want to believe that people are evil, another word I have a big issue with, that there are evil people, we've talked about this before, and normal people, and normal people are the people we know and have had lunch with and stuff aren't going to kill their parents. It's some evil cult person. Hmm. Another thing about Jane is, and I'm not sure where this came from. I may have known at some point. There was a reference to this in one of the things. She told someone that she gave her knives a few weeks before the killing away to a friend, telling her friend that the devil was in her or some stupid shit. And Chuck Reed said the cult thing and emotional issues in Jane's past raised red flags. He described her when they interrogated her quote as the kind of person who could babble on for a while and you'd get a little irritated. And I say, what the hell's wrong with that? Right? Sounds like me. But she passed a polygraph and more importantly, had an alibi. And Jane flat out said Elizabeth did it. 
Chuck said, she felt like she's an evil person. Jane felt Elizabeth is. Yeah. Jane told the cops that Derek and Nancy didn't like Elizabeth's new boyfriend. They felt he was beneath their social standing and a little immature and weird. Jane also said that the night of the Hasem's memorial service, she and Elizabeth were alone in the kitchen at one point, and Elizabeth said to her, I'm the devil and you're the sacrificial lamb. So Jane, wait, I just wanted... When you said she was the ex-girlfriend. Right, but she probably went to the memorial service because his parents were killed and she was close to the family, you know. Nobody really explains that, but I've seen it happen in real life. Not that this isn't real life. (laughs) In the New Yorker article, by the way, Liz's fan, Nathan Heller, says that Elizabeth denies saying this. Chuck Reed, the investigator's helpful translation of this is that Elizabeth was basically telling Jane, and this was before Jane was cleared, that I'm the one who did it, but you're going to take the fall for it. Howard, Elizabeth's older brother, Nancy's son from another marriage, was beginning to wonder about Elizabeth, too, ever since the memorial service, wondering if she was involved. You know, not necessarily that she did it. The Hasems didn't like her boyfriend, and she didn't seem too upset that they were dead. And then there was this weird thing. Sometime after the murder, and it's hard to say when... It may have been weeks, it may have been months. The family and friends were cleaning up the house because news flash, the cops don't clean it up. Yeah. You have to either hire Surf Pro or somebody or yeah. you have to do it yourself. It's just so you know in case the family I would hire members. somebody. Right, me too. And Annie Massey, or an aunt, depending on which account you read or watch, saw Elizabeth comparing her foot to the bloody sock print. Ah. Apparently, by one account, she took off her shoe and was, like, putting her foot next to it and seeing. In the days after the killings, Bedford County Deputy Sheriff C.L. Baker filed a report saying the bloody sneaker print at the scene looked like it was made by a woman or a small boy. In June, Bureau of Forensic Scientists Analyst Rick P. Johnson determined that the bloody sock print corresponds to a size 6.5 to 7.5 in a woman's size Ooh. or a 5 to 6 yeah, in a men's shoe. Tiny. So it's a small foot. In July, another analysis concludes that the fingerprints on a vodka bottle at the scene are Elizabeth's. The bottle was out on top of a cabinet near Derek's body. You know, and it's possible she had been to visit them a week before, but a lot of stuff was wiped down. That was the only fingerprint, I think, on the bottle. In July, blood sampling was done, and remember, DNA analysis was not a thing, and all four blood groups were present at the scene. Hmm. The victims were both A and AB, and their blood was there, or A and AB blood was there. There was also type B, Elizabeth's blood type, which 10% of the population has. And type O, Jan's blood type, which 43% of the population, including yours truly, has. AB negative. Yeah. So anyway, the cops turned their attention back to Elizabeth. So this is several months after the murders. They hadn't made a lot of headway. Now, Elizabeth had previously told the cops about the trip she and Jan took to D.C. that weekend. And the cops checked the records for the rental car they had rented. It's some good old-fashioned police work. And there were 429 more miles on it than would be necessary to drive from Charlottesville to D.C. That's the distance, though, it would take for a round trip from D.C. to Lynchburg. And Virginia's a very big state, by the way, for those of you who aren't familiar with it. We have a lot of listeners in Virginia. We do. It's It's like one of our biggest states. Hi. Hi. So they're probably familiar with this case. (laughs) Don't write and tell me how wrong I was about things. Anyway, Elizabeth told the cops the 429 extra miles was because they got lost and drove around looking for where they were supposed to be. For 400 miles. Mm-hmm. The cops felt that didn't pass a straight face yeah. test. Who drives more than 400 miles when they're lost? As Chuck Reed said, I'm not a rocket scientist, but if I'm lost, I don't drive around for six or eight hours. I ask for directions. 
And basically, it would take six or eight hours to drive that amount of distance. Mm -hmm. They also found through talking to her friends and family that her description of a nice family life with her parents was simply not true. Chuck Reed said, The overall picture was total emotional chaos. In her view, her parents were domineering and controlling, and she saw nothing positive about them. There was a lot of conflict, a lot of fights. At one point, she had run off somewhere in Europe, and they had to send people after her to get her. Her drug use was an issue. Apparently, she stole from them to buy drugs and a lot of other things. Around this time, a psychological evaluation of Elizabeth showed that she had borderline personality disorder. A psychiatrist on the TV show, the um, this is the true crime show, not the recent documentary, said that a person with borderline personality, quote, shows a great capacity for manipulation. And in Yan, Elizabeth finds her puppet. Ken Englade, the author that was liberally quoted on the U.S. TV show, says that she saw something in Yan that would allow her to get what she needed, quote, and if she has to use sex to get what she wants, she will. He was kind of focused on the whole sex thing uh. a lot. His. Chris Mohandi, a psychologist who was on the documentary I saw on YouTube, and is often on many others. We've seen him before. He's kind of a... The one on the stalker one? He he may have been. There were a lot of people in that. But he's been in a, like a lot of like late 90s, early 2000s. He's got big brown eyes. He's But anyway, he says what many saw as Elizabeth's magnetism was actually manipulation. Mm, yeah. And I heard somebody else recently on another podcast who knows human behavior say the same thing about charisma, that charisma is actually a tool. Well, when you look at, the, like, Jim Jones and other, like, cult leader type people. Right. Or anyone that's like that, that's Right. When somebody's described as charismatic, they're using certain personality tools to yeah, make you like they're them. they're drawing you to them. Yeah. Right. People respond to it. Yes. And he and the other psychologist on the show, whose last name is Showalter, and I kept wanting to call him Buck Showalter, who used to manage New York mm-hmm. Yankees, but his name isn't Buck. I think it's Robert or something. Said he, should, he should use Buck, though. I, I know he that. should. Both of them said that it's common for those with borderline personality to turn their anger and frustration on others, sometimes violently. Mm. The author, Ken Anglade, points out, Jan was guided by sex, and she's saying, I'll give you all the sex you want if you do what I tell you to. And he speculates that Jan was a virgin and so was even therefore more susceptible to her manipulations because he just wanted it. My feeling is whether he was or not, he was an 18-year-old kid and here's a woman basically saying, I will have hot, dirty sex with you. But I also, I think that it's not just about sex. No, it's not. And I'll get into that. But I'm saying people like to simplify it. Also, Elizabeth told the New Yorker writer in an interview a few years ago, she didn't have sex with Jan until the night of her parents' memorial service, where he says they started having sex right away. And you can see from some of their letters that I didn't read here, the stuff he describes in the letters, he's not going to describe if he wasn't doing it. Mm-hmm. Englom points out, Elizabeth is brilliant, angry, and damaged, but that doesn't make her a murderer. And I guess a formerly virginal 18-year-old who's finally getting a lot of sex does, according to his... Apparently. Yeah. As a side note, in the 2011 two-hour interview with Gian that I watched on YouTube, and I don't know who did this interview or what the purpose was, the woman doing the interview had an accent that sounded to me like a Virginia accent. You couldn't see her. It was like a single camera. You could only see him. It wasn't the interview from the Killing for Love documentary that he did in German, but it was probably done around the same time. But anyway, in that interview, she asked if he's ever read England's book. I'll call him England. I'm not sure how his name is pronounced. And Gian's answer is an emphatic absolutely not. And he also says England was selling the books on the courthouse steps during his trial. 
And I don't blame him because it sounds like England has his mind made up of personality-based issues. Which which is annoying to me. There are several references in almost everything I've read and watched about this case, about Elizabeth, quote, experimenting with hard drugs. But it seems more like she was actually using them. And that's one of those phrases journalists use because they're squeamish about talking about drugs or they just aren't thinking of the words they're using. But she had a dealer, and if you have a dealer, you're not experimenting. You're not experimenting. If you're, you're stealing doing, money from you're your parents. Drugs. And again, she told the New Yorker guy she only smoked pot, she didn't use heroin, oh, but there's plenty of documentation that no. she was using heroin, kind she's of. She's lying. But her being a drug user is important for the and truth. And she's also the fact that she's lying to make herself look right. better. Right, and to make Ian look like a liar, because, as you'll find out as we go on here, in any case, at the time her parents were killed, according to Ian, both he and her parents thought she was clean, and that's another phrase that doesn't get used if someone's just experimenting. And the the big hook for people seems to be that, like the whole motive thing, that Elizabeth's parents didn't like Jan, and they thought she was too good for him. This is another issue I have. People, even the cops need a simple one-line motive instead of looking deeper into mental health or understanding it. Then, of course, later, that motive gets turned around as in, so she'd kill her parents just because they don't like her boyfriend? So it's obviously more complicated. In his 2011 interview, Jan said Elizabeth also stole from her parents, and the week before they were killed, an expensive piece of jewelry disappeared from her mother's collection. Ah. He said that, knowing the relationship, they were probably calling her at school badgering her to come down to Lynchburg to discuss the missing jewelry. He also says that one of the things found at the crime scene was that Nancy's jewelry was disrupted. And it's not clear exactly what he's, the point he's trying to make. And the interviewer kind of interrupts him and doesn't clarify him. But he's trying to say something. It's He's trying to say something that documents what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Let's see. But in any case, um, that interviewer, on the YouTube interview with him, did not... In some, There were some places he had a hard time articulating the point he was trying to make, and she didn't really help him along or ask probing questions. Um, she was either dismissive or wanted to get on to something else, and so it's hard to say what, what he was exactly saying. But a lot is made of the fact in the true crime show in other places I've read that Elizabeth freely gave her foot fingerprint and blood type while Jean, while Jan didn't. Elizabeth was asked for these early in the investigation and, t- and she was told they were to eliminate her and at the time they likely were. The focus wasn't on her at the time. By the end of the summer though the focus was and it included Jan. And this is when Jan made the first of several huge mistakes, if we don't count the ultimate huge mistake of getting involved with her in the first place. He gave cop Ricky Gardner the impression he thought he was smarter than him when they first interviewed him. He was arrogant, Gardner said. Gardner thought he thought he was smarter than everybody. (laughs) And Ricky didn't like that. And Ricky said on the True Crime TV show that he decided right then and there Jan's was a suspect. Although, I will say, not many people... Wouldn't be smarter than... No, that's mean. I know, that's mean. Poor Ricky. Sorry, Ricky. Ricky. Well, Ricky's a major now in the police, so he's doing okay. But, yeah, and also refused to give footprint and fingerprint samples, which also Ricky, you know, added to Ricky's killing. But any lawyer would tell you. I don't know that he was talking to a lawyer at the time, but Ricky said he certainly didn't look like a person who could butcher two people up, but then I don't know what that person would look like. Mm. Maybe somebody in a cult. 
And by the way, this was Ricky's first homicide case, and he's mm-hmm. now a major with the Bedford County Sheriff's Department. And Elizabeth's footprints didn't match, match the impressions on the floor, the cops determined, and Chuck says it eliminated her. It didn't put her in the house, which I think is quite a leap because something didn't match her. I, maybe what he's saying is they didn't have anything to tie her to the house, but I'm not sure why that would eliminate her from eliminate being at the house. Her. And of course, now Jan wouldn't give his. Jan was interviewed in October 1985, seven months after the murders, early October. Ricky and Chuck played good cop, bad cop, with Ricky as bad cop and Chuck as good cop. And Chuck told Jan that he believed 99% Jan didn't do it, but Jan could make it 100%. <laughs> If he cooperated and gave his foot and fingerprints, Jan said he'd think about it and get back to them. He was smart enough to know that he didn't have to stay there and talk to them. Good boy. And if he wasn't being charged with anything. And it's a testament to his naivety at the time that he believed Chuck and thought Chuck really thought 99% he was innocent. And he didn't realize that it was just a rhetorical ploy that cops use in the good cop, bad cop game. But after the interview, he called Ricky up and said he was busy with schoolwork and he'd come the next week. And this was sometime in the day or two after that. But I just want to say about Elizabeth giving hers, too. It's her parents' house. Right. So, of course... Although they were in blood. Oh, yeah. Okay. And the fingerprints, again, things have been wiped down in these. In any case, I don't think she knew at the time what the evidence was. It's one of those cases where we see a lot of cases that are in the news where people look back and say, oh, they had to know this. They had to know that. Why did they? But it's not like all the information is out there. So she probably figured, yeah, my fingerprints are going to be there. And she didn't realize it in blood. Okay. And there's more. Okay. Meanwhile, Elizabeth's brother Howard was coming to town. When Howard got there on October 15th, about a week after Jan's interview and a few days before Jan's was due to go back to give his finger and footprints, Howard found the pair had left town. He called Mm. up Ricky and blasted him for letting them get away. Much has been said about Elizabeth's cooperation as far as foot and fingerprint goes and Jan's refusal. Remember the timing. And she was manipulative enough to know how to play the game and think she could get out of things. Jan's, in the 2011 interview, and again, this is something that nobody else references in other places, explains that he didn't give his because at that point he and Elizabeth were planning to flee and live on the lamb and their at least his naive belief for the rest of their life mm-hmm. going traveling the world under assumed identities and he didn't want his fingerprints on file and they would come back to haunt him sometime in the future and blow his identity and that makes perfect sense to me and it also fits in with this fantasy life they were living so around October 12th and 13th, the two took off separately for Europe. Jan's car was later found in the parking lot at the Newark, New Jersey airport. There were no clues in the car and no money in either of their bank accounts. In another misjudgment he made, they searched his apartment and found a letter to Ricky, or the roommate gave the letter, maybe he left it there on purpose. First of all, Ricky, by a lot of accounts, was feeling pressure from the Hasem family and from other people to solve the crime. They were socially prominent people. This was a socially prominent area, and we've seen it a lot of times before. If they had killed two minority people in some slum in some Virginia city, nobody would have given a shit. But two rich white people were killed who had social standing, and Ricky, who was on his first homicide case, was under a lot of pressure. Jans, being the naive and cocky little kid Mm. he was, left a letter to the cops in the apartment, after he fled, he should have just kept his fucking mouth shut. Dear officers, Reed and Gardner, and this isn't the whole thing, but I assume that especially you, Mr. Gardner, will be very excited by now, which is why I hate to disappoint you. Well, that's not exactly true. I suggest that you continue your investigation as before. Undoubtedly, you will find whom you are looking for. 
As for me, I am afraid you must remain, as Officer Reed put it, only 99% sure of my innocence. From what Liz has told me of what you discovered at Loose Chippings, I can only say that I am incapable of such a thing. I do not have many friends, but I think they will substantiate this and my long-standing dissatisfaction with my life here. So that letter pissed Ricky off, too. Uh, he felt it was taunting him. It was. And so now of. he's on a vendetta. If you're going to flee, just flee and don't leave a taunting letter behind. But Jans was a very mm-hmm. naive. He was 18. I, I shudder at the like shit that. I did I when I was 18. I know, me too. Jan and Elizabeth met in France under the Arc de Triomphe. Oh, Another romantic touch yes. in their story. See, everything just seems so calculated. And I feel like with him, he's it's this romantic. Yeah. They're both literature majors, I think. And like the German documentary has a lot of stuff like she references Macbeth a lot. Yes. He references A Tale of Two Cities a lot. Yes. They're, they reference Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, I was going to say Romeo and Juliet. So they're living in their little fantasy world. But also both of them were experienced world travelers who spoke several languages. And the world was their oyster. In Virginia, meanwhile, Chuck and Ricky were at a loss. They couldn't get Interpol involved because neither of the two were charged and all the evidence was circumstantial. Their investigation had nowhere else to go. So they sat and stewed, apparently. And that's how things went for the next seven months, until the two were caught in that Marks and Spencer on April 30th, 1986. As a reminder, the London cops had found letters in their apartment because there's no such thing, apparently, as a legal search and seizure in oh, Britain. And anyway, they found two crooks, so what does it matter, right? The letters reference murders, Elizabeth hatred for her parents, yeah. and sin of all sins, references to Ricky and Chuck as being local yokels. Oh, Ricky didn't oh, like Ricky that. did not like that. The two appeared in magistrate's court on May 2nd and were remanded to prison custody. And this is according to a 1995 affidavit from solicitor or attorney, as we say in the U.S., Ken Barker, who was assigned to represent both of them. But can I ask a question about British stuff? Yeah, I, don't I, know. I, I only know uh, what I'm British saying people, here. you can email me. So... Yeah. Is a barrister a lawyer that does yes. stuff in court and a solicitor? Is, yes, is, from my very, very, <laughs> very limited understanding and from watching decades of shows, I know, a I masterpiece theater of British, British cop shows, yeah. a barrister is the one who does stuff in court. A solicitor is the one who does the all the shit. heavy lifting and okay. shit. And I'm sorry if I'm insulting any British solicitors or barristers. <laughs> you can email my us. crappy explanation. But in any case, Ken Barker was assigned to represent both of them, which I don't think would happen in the U.S. either. I think they would be given, if they were assigned attorneys, they would be given Usually separate ones. separate, yeah. On June 5th, they again appeared in court and were remanded to police custody for questioning. Now, on a lot of the shows you watch, it sounds like they caught him on April 30th, and the next day Ricky and company were on a plane to Britain, and that's not how it happened. So on June 5th, they were remanded into police custody so they could be questioned. Now this is all what you're going to hear now is from the affidavit Barker did in 1995 for an appeal for Jans. Barker said that the remand was sought by the prosecution, ostensibly so they could be questioned to determine whether further crimes had been committed in the United States, and specifically to investigate whether the check frauds were part of a drug dealing scheme. And he says, though it's my recollection that the killing of Miss Hasem's parents was mentioned by the prosecution. And at first I'm like, oh, there's some British understatement for you, but there's a reason for that. Barker opposed the remand because Jan hadn't consented to it, and Barker wanted what's considered a normal remand, which I get the impression means they would remain in the prison, 
Barker would be there and another prison official besides the cops would be there. This remand sent them to the police station. Barker wrote, There was no question in my mind that a remand to police custody would be more oppressive than a normal remand to a remand prison. And this is all important because this is the whole crux of why Jan Soaring is in prison and even no matter what his guilt may be, probably should at least have gotten a new trial or something. But Barker also said it was obvious the questioning focus was the murders and not the thing about further check fraud and the whole check fraud thing was a smokescreen. Quote, I believe that later events have proved me correct, he wrote. The Crown, or as we would say in the U.S., the state, denied that the purpose was to question them about the murders and that Barker's objections were overruled and they were remanded to police custody June 9th. Barker asked that no interview be held until he could appeal. He appealed that afternoon or the next afternoon, but that was denied because the judge ruled that the questioning was to be about the check fraud and the murder questioning was secondary. And I'm kind of simplifying the legal ins and outs. Before the two were taken away to the remand, he visited them in their cells and told them not to answer any questions without him present. He drafted a letter that was delivered to the police station where Jan was taken. And remember, this was 1986, so there's no email or texting or anything, requesting that he... Barker, the lawyer, be present when either client was interviewed. So he made it official, and he also telephoned the chief superintendent asking the same thing. He was told that Jan had signed a waiver saying he didn't want a solicitor present. Hmm. Barker was at the police station when Elizabeth was interviewed June 6th and 7th. He said the entire time he was there, no one ever told him Jan had asked for him. He was there both days, and if he'd been told Jan had asked for his lawyer, he would have gone to Jan. Quote, I find it unusual procedure that a person being interviewed who refuses to answer certain questions without consulting a lawyer should be subject to further interview when his lawyer is physically present in the same building, Barker wrote. He also said at that time it was the practice that questions and answers would be written down, and at the end of the interview, it written down as they were happening, yeah. and at the end of the interview, the interviewee would put his initials against each one and sign at the bottom. If he refused to sign or put his initials, then they would make a note that he had refused certain ones. Ann Barker says he was never called by Jan's lawyers to testify at his trial in 1990 or even interviewed by them. So with that background, Chuck by this time had quit the cop business to go into a more lucrative family business, apparently. But Ricky was still on the case. He and county prosecutor James Updike, who you'll hear a little more about later, he's the guy in the German documentary, The, the Prosecutor. The- Oh. With the mustache and the leisure suit type oh, suit. okay, yeah. They flew to England that June. The TV show also kind of glosses over that they had a limit on time to question them. And it, may, and it was simplified, but I think what the real thing is the remand was for a certain amount of days. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to go and question them. And Ricky said on the TV show, basically, we had to get what we were going there for or we'd go home empty-handed. Yeah. I can't remember his exact words. Yeah. But the cops in England, as you heard from Barker, said Jan signed a waiver saying he didn't want a lawyer. Jan, and it's documented on his website, says the police log shows, and they have that on the website, it was asked that he be held, quote-unquote, incommunicado, which means he wouldn't be allowed access to an attorney or to talk to anybody but the cops. The same wasn't true for Elizabeth, who was not held incommunicado. Who, who, so who made that... It's not clear, but it... They're saying it was him, but he... No, no, I was just going to say, I think that's different from signing a waiver. This is saying this kid isn't allowed to talk to an attorney or have an attorney present. It's different from the waiver, which there's no clear 
thing whether he actually signed one or not. He said in the 2011 interview that I watched on YouTube, and I'm sure he said it countless times, that he repeatedly asked for a lawyer during the four days he was questioned by British and U.S. cops. Hmm. On the fourth day, he confessed to murdering the Hastings. He has said, starting with shortly after that confession, that he thought he had diplomatic... Uh, and I don't think, he says diplomatic immunity, and I'm not sure that's totally the word, because diplomatic immunity means you don't get charged with a crime. But he thought the provision was, and there was some law in 1961 that there was a provision for this, just not for, he. it was misunderstood and it wasn't for him. The provision would be that he'd be sent to Germany and tried there since he was a German citizen. And under German law, he likely would have been tried as a minor, served 10 years, and been paroled. And so he had agreed with Elizabeth, with her urging to take the fall for Elizabeth because she'd be facing the death penalty in Virginia, whereas he could go to Germany, serve five years, and then be free. And he likened himself to Sidney Carton in yeah, a tale of two cities. Far, is he the one that thing? thinks is a far, far better? Yes, and that's the name of one of Jan's seven books. Yeah, you'll hear more about that later. But seven he was books. Yeah, we'll get don't don't get distracted by that right now. We're to prove the point. <laughs> but he said he was waiting during those days he was interviewed for his lawyer to show up. Uh. So he could discuss the diplomatic immunity strategy with Uh-oh. him and f- make sure it was a thing. But Ricky and Updike were on a deadline and had to get home. And so when his lawyer still hadn't come by to talk to him on the fourth day, despite the fact he kept saying he wanted to talk to a lawyer, and no one apparently said anything to him about the waiver or the incommunicado, he may have signed the waiver not even knowing what he was signing. Who knows? If he indeed signed one, he pulled the plug and he confessed. Hmm. Those in the U.S. may be confused by this whole thing, but it's another provision of U.S. law that's different from Britain. Once you ask for a lawyer in the U.S., they have to stop asking you questions. Even if you signed a waiver saying you didn't want one, and I don't even know if we have that here, but even if you initially say, yeah, I'll talk, I don't want a lawyer, and then change your mind, they have to stop talking to you. And I say, yay for the U.S. Constitution. I knew there was a reason we fought that revolution. And by the way, today is Patriot Day. Patriot which is Day. the anniversary of the shot heard around the world 300 and something or 200 something years ago <laughs> whatever it was 1775 it was 200 and yeah that started the revolutionary war that led to the fact that we can ask for a lawyer and the cops have to, to stop Trump talking as president yes thank you Anyway, well, I I don't blame the Constitution for that. Anyway, Ricky and Updike must have been creaming in their pants at the fact fact that Jan didn't have the same constitutional rights in Britain that they would have been forced to comply with in the U.S. And it's an interesting question for a lawyer if we ever get ours back. And it's probably, and I'm sure it's been brought up in this case, that if somebody is being questioned for a U.S. crime, do their constitutional rights not well, extend? Although is, he wasn't a U.S. citizen, you are treated like one under the Constitution if yes. you've committed a crime. And they're the going to be brought back and tried in the U.S. Right. You know what I mean? So right. And what I, you can you can just go with whatever is right. The, and I know people are all like, "Oh, victims' rights, victims' rights." But I would like to point out that constitutional rights exist solely if. His constitutional rights have been adhered to. We wouldn't be here talking about this today, and you people out there wouldn't have to be listening to me drone on. You so just think of it. People out there, say, wait, talk to our listeners. No. Um, yeah, I act people. like they resent the you fact assholes. Jan told Ricky in his confession, and apparently it was just Ricky in the room, from what I can tell initially, hmm. that he planned to try to talk to the Hastens about his relationship with his 
with Elizabeth and tried to convince them it was okay. On their drive to D.C., she had been talking about her parents and how awful they were and how they hated them and blah, blah, blah. Was this recorded? No? Yes, no? I know there are transcripts. I didn't have time to go look at all of them. But anyway, he was going to try to talk to them. He was going to drive all the way from D.C. to Lynchburg, four hours one way, three hours, whatever. But if they weren't convinced, he'd, quote, do what he had to do. The Hasems, when he got there, weren't receptive, and he freaked out. And there's a bad reenactment on the TV uh, crime show showing that. Slitting Derek's throat, and then Nancy's chasing him around the house, apparently, uh, while neither of them called for help or went. Ricky gets the British cops to come in, and he has to repeat the whole thing to them. The day before, one of the British cops asked Jan if he's willing to plead guilty to a crime he didn't commit. I'm not sure because I didn't look at the affidavit what the context for that is or if it shows. I mean, not the affidavit, but the transcript. I'm not sure why he would be asked this thing unless it was spurred by something Elizabeth might have said. And I'll get to that in a minute. But it's a very odd question to ask somebody during an interrogation. Now, this is the day before he confessed. And Jan's reply is, I can see it happening, yes. I think it's a possibility. I think it happens in real life. Now, and it's funny, in the 2011 YouTube interview, the clueless interviewer says, but it doesn't happen in real life. And Jan and I both (laughs) went nuts on her at the same time, as most of you true crime fans know. And as Jan's told the interview, of the DNA overturns of crimes in the U.S., 25% were convicted on false confessions. People do confess. And granted... Especially young... Well, and his was... Granted... His reasons for confessing were half-assed. Yes. But you have to put them in context. You don't sit there and say, well, I wouldn't have done what he did. You weren't in his situation. You, you weren't if you're blinded by... It, he was blinded by love, but people manipulated. do it for their kids. Right. People it, it, on TV right. movies and stuff. And one of the time. issues I find with this case, particularly this interviewer, and I have no idea who she is or what the context was, and we have this issue a lot with things as we talk on our podcast, but people are so certain of their assumptions in the face of overwhelming evidence that their assumptions aren't true. And people are so sure their assumptions based on their limited knowledge or what they would do. Lost in much of the literature about this case is the fact that Elizabeth confessed too. Yes. Hers was a lot shorter And when she says, I did it, the British investigator immediately says, don't be silly, and moves on. It's in the new German documentary, Killing for Love, or The Promise in German. But the novel-length New Yorker story doesn't even mention it, nor does the true crime American TV doc I watched, or even reviews of the new documentary where they reference it, and I find that interesting. It's on tape. I mean, we heard it. In fact... There's a transcript of her interview, more than what we heard on the German Killing for Love documentary. And the cop, it's a British cop, is taking the approach that she egged Jan to do it, not that she did it herself. And the guy's really badgering her, from what I can tell from the transcript, and she keeps denying. She keeps saying, I didn't, I didn't. And finally she says, all right, I let him into it, I did everything. And the cop says, you knew he was going to do it, didn't you? And she says, I did it myself. And the cop immediately says, and you hear it on the documentary, you hear how fast, like he wants to cut her off. He says, don't be silly. Yes. And that's that. And I think that's the one. You're too pretty to have killed anybody. And so she confesses, and she's immediately told she's being silly. Meanwhile, he confesses. He did, scum of the earth. That's that. Also lost is the fact that in in Jan's confession, and I'm using air quotes around it, he gets major details wrong, including what Nancy was wearing, the location of Derek, whether one of them had glasses on or not, all sorts of 
details about what happened. Wrong, like he was kind of guessing mm-hmm. at things. Elizabeth waived extradition, and back in the U.S. in August 1987, more than a year after the confessions, she pleads guilty to two counts, to accessory before the fact, to first-degree murder, and is sentenced to 90 years in prison, two terms of 45 years to be served consecutively. As part of the extradition proceedings, both of them are analyzed by psychiatrists again, and Elizabeth, besides the previous diagnosis, is found to be a pathological liar. Which people knew part anyway. Of borderline. Yeah, and people knew anyway and had come up. Jan is found to have, and I'm probably not pronouncing this right because it's French, but folie à deux syndrome, which is folly of two, in which the delusions of a stronger partner become that person's delusions as well. Which I want to say that I heard first heard about that during Elizabeth Smart thing. Right, right. And there's like other things. No, Chris Mahandi, the psychiatrist in the TV show, says he isn't convinced that's what it was. Quote, he was a naive young man with a lack of confidence and no experience, and she took advantage of him and got him to do things he wouldn't normally do. And also, I'll say, he didn't know what was going on. Right, and that's why I'm saying, and I think Chris Mahandi was probably saying too, is that he was manipulated, which is different. Like, I look at the Turpins or, yes. you know, two episodes ago, where you have the other person starts believing the yes. shit. Yes, And they... Are and they, are, they are complicit and they are actively participating, right. which he wasn't. Right. If we are to believe until his after, story. Right, yeah. until after the fact. Yeah, and then he was trying to protect. He thought that she had abusive parents, mm-hmm. and however Vega were gotten rid of, he was going to help her and protect her. Right. It and wasn't I, like he was like... Right, right. I mean, and I'm At her hearing, Elizabeth said that she didn't really think he'd do it, that he had four hours to change his mind on the drive to Charlottesville. But then, as somebody in the true crime TV show points out, she could have called her parents and warned them. And and also, he didn't go to Charlottesville. Jans, meanwhile, had a longer road to extradition. First of all, he found out shortly after his confession, which he says was the biggest mistake of his life, that he found out diplomatic immunity didn't work the way he thought it did. And think of it, there was no internet back then. And really, are you going to call the embassy before you do this and say, hey, (laughs) hypothetically, I have a friend who, let's say he killed somebody or he was going to confess to killing somebody and he's a German national and they were killed in the U.S. What do you get? You know, so that wouldn't work. And who knows how much that came from her? Yeah, I know. She probably said, look, I've been around. You right, know, I and know. I know this stuff. In any case, he recanted his confession, but it was too late. No one cared, despite the fact that the day before he confessed, the British cop had even asked him if he'd falsely confess, and he said he would. Britain was unenthusiastic about extraditing because he was charged with a capital crime and could be put to death. And I won't go into all the legal wrangling. It took a few years, and they went to the European court. But um, Virginia was finally convinced to take the death penalty off the table, and they extradited him. As a lot of countries do, America executes more prisoners than any other country, than all the other countries in the world. We're the best. He was sent to the U.S. in January 1990, and he'd been in prison in Britain since his April 1986 arrest, and his trial began in June. It lasted three weeks, and the big evidence was the sock print. And cops had taken the photo of the bloody sock print that, remember, was discredited as being his by their first analysis. And they blew up the photograph to match the size of Jean's footprint. And they say that with a straight face, like nobody's going to say... 
And then they did a transparent overlay, and if you watch video of the trial, James Updike makes a big show of putting the transparent overlay, see it matches, see it matches, with great effect. And since the first forensic guy who looked at it in 85 thought it was, you know, sizes smaller than what Jan's eight and a half foot was, they got a guy who specialized in tire track imprints to testify that it was a match. Well, feet are kind of like the tires of your body. Yes, they are. And that and the type O blood at the scene, remember 43% of all people have it, is what convicted him. Oh, yeah, and the fact that he was arrogant and a know-it-all, it's illustrated by this exchange with Updike. Updike says to him at one point when he's cross-examining him, is it an intellectual challenge for you? And Saring says, no, it isn't. And Updike says, it certainly wouldn't be a challenge for you with your intellect to outwit me, (laughs) would it? And Soaring, according to the New Yorker, it says Soaring con himself. I'm trying to remember. I think Soaring's like, what? If I remember from the documentary, it's like, yeah, from the German, he's like, like, looks confused. Then he says, well, with a little smile, I think so far you're outwitting me. I think he's not understanding the seriousness. Although he's no longer 18, I think he doesn't understand the shit he is in. No. And here's from the New Yorker's account, another kind of annoying New Yorker thing. Updike, a man in early middle age with obedient golden retriever eyes and a chestnut mustache, places his hands (laughs) on his hips to spread the jacket of his light blue summer suit. He cocked his head incredulously. I just can't understand, sir, why you at times are sitting up there under these circumstances on trial for murder laughing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it's like we talked about before when we were talking about, I don't know if we talked about it on our our podcast, but after talking about the movie, I didn't take it as laughing. I took it as like a nervous giggle or, you know, a nervous laugh it wasn't like aha you're right. so funny it was uh, you know which people do when they're nervous I, you can't right and also he's being badgered by this guy so anyway and i'd probably say something sarcastic i probably too. would too i'd probably be very and sarcastic. i'd be in prison right now. me too jan's well now in his early 20s is still very young looking yes and he does to me watching the video from the trial on the german documentary he doesn't look arrogant he looks like a naive young guy who's not totally aware of the serious mess he's in, and doesn't realize that he should bow and scrape and make himself look humble. And his attorney, Richard Neaton, was from Detroit, where Jan's parents lived, oh, which isn't right. explained in the... So we finally get an explanation of why they had a Detroit attorney. But no, he was uh, unaware yeah. of some of the many vagaries of Virginia law, yes. which made the trial a rough road for him. Neaton later lost his license for several years for forgery, stealing money from clients, and some other issues. Hmm. He pleaded some kind of emotional issues that he said made it difficult for him to do his job and that period was while he was representing Jan. Hmm. So you'd think later in appeals that would come under the incompetent counsel. I would have probably get an attorney from... Well, he had Virginia guys helping him, but apparently they just didn't do a good job. They weren't very helpful. Jan said what actually happened is that while they were having lunch that weekend in D.C., Elizabeth told him that she had a drug debt she was using again, despite the fact that she had told him and her parents that she wasn't. And to pay it off, she had to take some drugs from D.C. and deliver, which is why they were there, and deliver them to a 
dealer at UVA. Hmm. And if she didn't, the dealer, whose parents were friends of her parents, and this is a guy who comes up later, James Farmer, would tell her parents she was back on drugs and there'd be hell to pay. I'm not sure if they were going to like cut her off Probably. or to cut her off, but it sounds like this was an ongoing constant battle she had with her parents. She needed Jans to provide an alibi and told him to buy movie tickets for two for several shows that night at different times. So it'd be like we were at the movies here. We And I just want to interject. Movies is a long time alibi that just doesn't work. We the see other in a lot thing of cases. is you're in D.C. for whatever reason. And you're going to the movies. What they told the what they told the authorities why they were in D.C. But they were just, just for a weekend of fun. Which is like, okay, so we're going to go to the movies. Fucking movies yes. anywhere. But anyway. But when she didn't come back as planned that evening, he also bought a ticket for one to the midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Ooh. Show. And that's why that's a little more significant, because she didn't know he had bought that yes. ticket. So that wasn't part of her initial story. When she came back, around 2, 2.30 a.m., he was in the room. She told him she'd killed her parents. Hmm. Her hands were clean, but she had reddish-brown spots on her forearms, and she was wearing different clothes. Hmm. The jury was deadlocked 6-6 when they first went into the jury room, and this is documented by an affidavit by one of the jurors. They were swayed by the sock print evidence. Ah. On September 4th, 1990, Jans was sentenced to two life terms, and he's been denied parole 13 times since then. And here are some of the issues that are keeping his case live. Elizabeth originally got the info about the movie tickets wrong. I'm not sure if it was at her hearing or when she testified at his trial what movies they were for and what time. An attorney who Jan's father had originally tried to hire, and this comes from Jan's interview, YouTube interview, but it's documented. When his father went to first initially hire him, um, had brought some case information. And one of them was photocopies of the movie tickets. The attorney still had them. So he faxed those to the prosecutor and the prosecutor visited Elizabeth in jail that night. And the next day she had the names and times of the movies correct. Nice. Yes. Jan also had ordered room service between two of the movie times when Elizabeth would have been when he would have been back and on his trip back, but he ordered room service and charged it to the credit card. And apparently somebody at the hotel who was questioned later remembered delivering it to him. But that somehow got lost and everything and nobody ever followed up. And the person actually, if I'm getting this right, possibly a few years later during an appeal kind of came forward, but then it was lost and things happened and nothing ever came of it and the lawyers ignored it or something. He had also written a check for cash at the hotel during the time when he would have had to have been in Virginia because Elizabeth took all the cash with her. <laughs> and back then, you didn't have necessarily yeah. ATM cards and stuff. And it was signed by him and time-stamped. He had cashed it at the front desk of the hotel. Hmm. But his lawyer never tried to track it down when there was still time to do it. The judge in the case, William Sweeney, was asked to recuse himself because he was socially friendly with the family. He and Nancy Hasem's brother had gone to the Virginia Military Institute together. And a few years before the murder, he'd attended a party in honor of Nancy Hasem. He'd also given an interview to a local magazine before the trial saying, as far as the acts themselves, I don't think Elizabeth Hasem planned all that out. It was like a double dare you. I think she was shocked he took the dare. Still, Hmm. he didn't think he was prejudicial or anything. They also asked for a change of venue because the murders have been so sensationalized in the local press. He refused. He did bring in a jury from the next county over, but didn't want to move. They were also filming it. You'll see on the German documentary, it says like it was the first 
trial filmed on TV. That's not true. It was the first major trial in Virginia shown on Virginia TV. It was a thing back then to start doing that. Yeah, because photographers weren't normally allowed in the courtroom. They are in some cases. You know, they have sketch artists. Some judges Well, they have sketch artists, but I mean, but back then, I'm saying it wasn't common. It depends on the court. Yes. Some judges allow it, but the photographers can only take photos of certain things. They can't take photos of the jury. So some judges are just like, it's easier not to have them at all. Yeah. But they had started televising trials and... Many attorneys felt, and we could ask Matt when we ever get him back, that it adds a certain theatricalness to the trial, and things aren't as genuine Although, anymore. But the argument is that trials are supposed to be public, and that's the way to make them public. Right. Although the public can them. get off their flabby asses and go. If the one thing I wanted to they're say... Public, they're public because people are allowed in them. Yes. But it's not like well, a I'm legal ad that has I to agree. be I'm published saying that in the that's papers. the argument right. for them. Yes. But the one thing I wanted to say about the appeal thing is, I was remembering our last um, show, Linda Dolliff case, where the judge in the appeal said, and that's why when you were talking about the person that came forward during the appeal, the judge said, all I can think is about what is happened what at happened trial. at the trial. Right. right. But in any case, Sweeney denied the request that TV cameras not be allowed. He didn't feel he was prejudiced and he wasn't going to recuse himself. Which and is weird. Why wouldn't he just do it just to... Because he wanted, he was going to be on TV and he wanted to do the trial, you know. He's a human being too. He refused to grant the change of venue. Beyond story about Elizabeth having a dealer, a drug dealer who helped her with the murders, or a drug dealer and a friend, um, later was supported by some letters and some other things. Somebody, another party, came across some journals from this James Farmer, brought them to Jan's in prison and showed him that supported the fact that Farmer and Elizabeth were having a sexual relationship at the time that she... He was so in love with Jans that he had a car that was a piece of shit that comes up later. He's no longer alive. Attempts to bring this up at trial were squashed. And I'm trying to remember from the German documentary, but James Farmer's family was in the same social circle as the Haysoms. And there was some connection with the judge as well. I believe so. And um, his father was some kind of prominent person. Yeah. But in any case, as science advanced, the blood... At the scene was tested for DNA and other things. Of the 42 samples, 31 were too degraded to test, but the 11 remaining were not from Jan's. Mm. Many were from an unknown male. As sampling increased, even the blood types that Derek and Nancy were A, B, and A, but it showed that some of that wasn't from them. Mm-hmm. That it was from other yeah, people. The other B things. blood was shown by DNA to be Elizabeth's yeah. at the scene. Ooh. And there's more blood analysis I won't go into, but you can find it on the information section of jansoring.com. There's a part on his website, that, and I'll link when I eventually get to it on our More Stuff page, that has information. But all these things are linked. The, the kind of documentation you go to if you're a journalist or someone and want to find out what like really happened. Documents. Affidavits. Yep. Police reports, court so documents. So that's not, yeah, and so it's not stuff that he, you know, right. And the only Right, and the only place I can find a lot of this is on his website. Yeah. And it's very well organized and laid out, and it's not 
fiction or made up. So, and I'm just giving his website the credit because that's where I found it. Okay. Another thing, back in 1985, about two months after the murders, a car was towed to a shop belonging to Tony Buchanan. The car, it was towed there. It wasn't brought there by the people who owned it or anything. It was caked in old mud and grass, and the interior had bloody footprints all over the floor mats, and he found a bloody knife between the front seat and the console. Since this was deer country, and I can see this happen in Maine, too, he figured someone had been spotlighting deer, which is illegal, but you go in a car, you shine a spotlight... You shoot the deer from the car, and when you field dress a deer, it can get pretty messy. Just read my second murder mystery (laughs) novel if you want to know more. But in any case, some people, I think some city folk, are kind of askance. But this was two months after the murder, and a lot of the details from the murder weren't made known. And I don't know that he had any reason to say, oh, this must have to do with that murder. But in any case... The two college students, a girl and a guy, came in to claim it. The girl paid for it, but it was the guy's car. This was about two or three months after the murder. And later, during one of the trials or one of the appeals, I'm not sure when it happened, he saw Elizabeth Hasem's mugshot and said, That's the girl was in here with her damn car! I guess they made a big impression on him. And she was very, she's the kind of person you would remember. Yeah. She was tall. She keeps getting described as good looking. But she also had a strange Europeanish accent. Yeah. And this yeah. kind of air about her. Yes. But there was also a mugshot of Jan Soaring. And he's like, but that's not the guy she was with. He told Jan's attorney at the time, but never heard back. Mm. He says he also told Sweeney, who he knew from a veterans organization. And Sweeney shrugged it off. He told Ricky Garner, Ricky Garner brushed him off. Both Garner and Sweeney denied to the New Yorker that they ever talked to Tony Buchanan. But the theory is that when Elizabeth got to Lynchburg, she got picked up. She left the rental car and got picked up in this other car, Mm -hmm. which would make sense. She went through all this work to do an alibi. You're not going to then put the rental car at the scene of the crime. The car apparently broke down and they pushed it into the woods. And so then they just left it, and when they had time, they went back and dealt with it later, yeah. when when the dust had cleared a little. And that's a lead, albeit a few years after the fact, that was never really pursued. It's not really clear. I Buchanan probably threw the knife away or something. It's not really, because at the time he didn't think it was related to a crime, and I know everybody's out there, how could he not? Oh my God. Oh. But you don't, everything you do, he, had a different, he was leading his life. He wasn't an expert If there's a car in the woods and there's blood in it and stuff, he wouldn't necessarily, especially if he'd seen other vehicles like that. Right. The yeah. bloody sock print evidence, and I use air quotes again around evidence, has largely been discredited over the years. The fact that they could blow it up. But there are no ridge lines or impact points, which they usually use for to compare prints. So it could be from anyone. Yeah. It's smeared. The size doesn't match. And they freely admit, again, that they blew it up. Gail Marshall, a deputy attorney general in Virginia from 1986 to 1994, began examining the case in 1994. She said there were multiple prejudicial errors And in 1996, she filed an appeal. She had become a defense attorney and filed an appeal that they be looked at. She also said Jan's Fifth Amendment rights were violated with his London interrogation. That's the right to remain silent. She was told by a deputy sheriff after the first appeal was filed that he picked up two vagrants in the area shortly after the murders and they'd had a buck knife, just like the APB the cops had initially issued after the murders. He let them go and they killed a homeless guy in Roanoke. The investigators knew about that, but they never told the defense about it. Hmm. It could have been an alternate suspect theory. So that was a Brady violation, she felt. She said his counsel was incompetent. For instance, competent counsel would have easily shot down the footprint evidence. No shit. 
The case went almost to the U.S. Supreme Court, which didn't hear it. So it went through the entire appeals process, constantly denied, constantly denied. She's been fighting for Yom for more than 20 years and said in the New Yorker article that she has a moral certainty that not only didn't he get a fair trial, but he didn't commit the crime. Mm -hmm. She told the New Yorker, quote, It defies belief that a bookish, well-behaved kid would commit a rage-fueled knife attack on two people he met once and then for 30 years be pristinely behaved in one of the most violent and crazy-making environments on the planet. When questioned in the 2011 interview about why he'd stayed with somebody who'd, quote, brutally butchered her parents, an issue a lot of people seem to have when I read, like, especially reviews of the documentary, Jan said that he wasn't aware at the time how brutal the killings were. And then the interviewer says, well, the paper said they were brutal. And Jan's points out, like I always do, that... They always say that about murder. They do always say murder. And I even joke about that adjective. And also, he wasn't around for a lot of it. He took, oh, well, they, Well, they were there for seven months. But a lot of that wasn't initially publicized. They weren't publicizing a lot of the crime scene stuff, as people forget, because they... They want it, well, they have to keep it... Right, they want to keep things to themselves. He points out how young and naive he was, and that his idea of death and murder came from things like Matlock. And I can see what he's talking about. He had this fictionalized he was, view. He's, yeah, you, I mean, he's 18. And I think another thing people have to understand is the internet and cable TV has changed how we view. Right? He's not seeing a lot of crime scene no. photographs in his no. life. No. When he says Matlock... They don't show shit like that in, in newspapers back then. Right. I mean... Elizabeth had also been sexually abused by her mother or claimed she had it. She this is, claims, yes. Well, this is kind of murky, too, because some other people think it, too. Her mother took nude photos of her and showed them to her friends, saying they were for art modeling. And I'm not clear on the nature of the photos. Yeah, I, I, they mentioned that in the documentary, but they didn't explain right. it very well. they didn't. And Elizabeth, at her hearing for her plea, denied the sexual abuse. She now says it happened... And she also says that the reason she claimed that she used hard drugs was to kind of explain some of her behavior when actually it was the sexual abuse that made mm-hmm. her behave. Well. But she'd been hammering Jan with how awful her parents were since they'd started going out or before they started going out. And again, he was a naive kid who believed life was like a book. You know, tale of two cities, whatever. And he believed this wonderful woman who he loved was this abused. She may have been damaged person that he was now going to protect and help Mm -hmm. and he was the hero of this story but he also now in or in 2011 pointed out to the interviewer that the murder was a quote unquote junkie killing the kind of killing a junkie or somebody would do and he has an interesting take he said he's been in prison for a long time and he knows a lot of good people but some of them obviously did very bad things but he says everybody he's ever known who's committed a violent crime and he's known many being in prison has been in character with them. That almost anyone is capable of a violent act, Mm -hmm. but the act has to be within your character. He was a planner, an organizer, and he says his lawyer hates it when he says this, but he's going to say it anyways. If he were to murder two people, it would have been this organized, planned murder, not the free-for-all that it was. And I kind of agree, he's the only one in this whole thing who seems to be looking at, you know, behavior analysis. That's right. And speaking of behavior analysis, it's something I forgot to put in my notes. There was a profile done that Ricky Gardner claimed was never done, but somebody actually has found a letter referring to it. And that guy in the documentary. Yes. (laughs) A PI that they hired. The guy with the mustache. The profile 
points to a woman doing it in a rage, but more than one person as well. And I can't remember all the details. And I think because it didn't meet their story, it was discarded. Yes. But he's been a model prisoner. He hasn't had one infraction point. And apparently from a couple things I've read, you can get those for looking at somebody the wrong way in a Virginia prison. And he hasn't gotten one. He's written seven books. In English, he had, and I won't get into it, you can read all about it in the New Yorker article, which I'll eventually post on our website, some kind of spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons he hasn't gotten parole is because the family is against it. And he understands victims' rights, but he says that, it's in one of his books, at least one of them is about this, that there are supposed to be three pillars of the justice system, the state, the accused, and the victim. And one of the reasons people complain about, oh, you know, prisoners' rights, and this is Maureen talking, not Jan's, is they don't understand that the Constitution, it's not prisoners' rights, but we have a Constitution that's set up so people, no matter how much you don't like their personality or the color of their skin or the fact that they act like they're smarter than you, it protects you from being convicted. It protects all citizens, not it, just right. criminals. It doesn't just protect criminals. It protects everybody. And when people complain about criminals' rights, what they're complaining about is the Constitution. I never understand how people can be so fired up about some aspects of the Constitution that are very vague, don't even mean what they meant. But these things that are very clear, they want to dismiss. One of the only reasons he's not getting parole is because this is a very high-profile political yes, case involving is. political people, and the family doesn't want him paroled. They don't even want him to go back to Germany, which is where he'd be sent back. And I won't get on all that political ins and outs, but there was a move for a long time to repatriate him to Germany, mm-hmm. and that was going to go through when Tim Kaine was governor of Virginia, and then he left office, and the next guy who came in who turned out to be corrupt removed it, even though it was actually should have been a federal decision because by then it was in the AG's office, blah, blah, blah. It's just like when we were talking about Brenda Spencer. The whole reason she hasn't gotten parole is because of her high-profile case. And so anyway, so he's written seven books. Some are about victims' rights. I think they're all nonfiction they are traditionally published by Lantern Publishing, yeah. so it's not like sell. I don't think they let prisoners self-publish. They don't have access to the internet. He told the 2011 interviewer that the fight right now is for parole, not for repatriation. He's been in prison 28 years. He's been before the parole board 13 times. He was in another four years in Britain. He says there's no happy ending to this. But he says even if he's let go, he's lost the best years of his life. life. He wanted to be a father. He's a guy. He still could be. He's in his early 50s. One of the prisons, his job was taking photographs on visiting day. And he would see the prisoners' kids and family come in and realize he didn't even have that. Because he was 18 years old when he went to prison and never had a chance. And I know some people are saying, well, that's what he deserves. But even if he were guilty... The way he was treated by the justice system is bullshit. He didn't get a fair trial. And I think part of it has to do with, they were, I think they were gleeful because I hear cops get annoyed. They, cops don't want somebody in the U.S., they don't want you to ask for a lawyer. They don't want you to understand you can do that. They don't want you to understand that you can get up and leave the room. And so they were thrilled that they were in a situation where they didn't feel they had to do that. And his constitutional rights went right down the toilet. And then all this other stuff. Whether you think he's guilty or not, if somebody's guilty, find them guilty in a legitimate way. Yeah. And remember when we talked about the, and this was a year and a half ago, but the Jean documentaries and how one kind of shit yes. all over the other one. And our point at the time was, if you're going to shit all over the other one, 
take the facts and the points and make your case for yes. them. Don't ignore them. Don't ignore them. And what I feel like fit. I found everything I read and saw in this, aside from his website and the German documentary, everything to be fraught with assumptions that discounted solid findings about her mental illness or known facts of the case or of human behavior. For instance, in the 2011 interview, the interviewer asks him why he said he went back into the house leaving the sock print. How did he know about the sock print? Blah, blah, blah. And Jan seems a little confused and is like, I'm not sure. But in the interrogation, they can feed you information. And I, I he doesn't really remember. And she kind of, in this gotcha way, says, well, you certainly remember a lot of other details. And he kind of just shrugged it off and says, well, you know, it's what happens. But my response is, I'm, yeah, no shit. You remember what happened. When you're making shit up, it's hard to remember yes. lies. And that's one way cops tell when people are lying. So she was all smug with her gotcha when actually it helped prove his point. He couldn't remember what he said or specifically what he said when he was lying about it. He remembers the details of things yeah. that really happened. The New Yorker article was largely sympathetic to Elizabeth. And even though it was written from a point of view that brought in all sides and was ambiguous about a uh, conclusion, it seems like the writer was manipulated by her, too. She trains dogs. She got a drafting degree. Is it a male writer? Yes. Mm-hmm. I think his name was Nathan Heller. She trains dogs. She got a drafting degree. She's learned Braille and teaches it to other inmates. I think she's just acclimated to her life. And his depiction of her now is very sympathetic, while his depiction of Jan is snarky and negative. His first article was in 2015, In a follow-up article after the documentary came out last year, he wrote another one about how the article he'd written before haunted him or some bullshit. It seems more like of a way to rationalize some of the things he said, but he bangs away at the fact that Jans has this huge cadre of people advocating for him and that he has all these files and documentation. Well, Elizabeth didn't have all this. Like, he's all about his defense while she's oblique, and he seems to think that's in her favor. And he gives an example... And I'd like to point out to this guy, which he doesn't really seem to understand, that if you're locked up for a murder you didn't commit for nearly 30 years, and none of your appeals were heard, and you've been denied parole 13 times, even though there are glaring issues with the case, maybe you know the case well and make sure you have a lot of documentation and stay on point. You want to advocate for yourself. You have other people advocating for you because they see the injustice that's been done. And you advocate for yourself because no one else is going to care as much as you. So, yeah, he's going to be all about his defense because he's an innocent person who was railroaded and has been in prison for his entire adult life. Just a thought there. The author also has a reference to Elizabeth's bipolar disorder, And he just references that she was diagnosed with it, but doesn't seem to take into account how much this would affect her behavior. Mm. She also said their love was real, and she didn't really remember James Farmer, who the New Yorker doesn't name in the story, but it was probably a one-week fling on a ski vacation, even though the overwhelming evidence, including in the documentary, which he saw and claimed he enjoyed and liked, shows that that's not true. While the information was available at the time he wrote both articles and included in the documentary, like I said, he liked it, he watched it, he doesn't reference it when she says this, so he just seems to take everything she says as face value. And as Jans has had several books published, as we mentioned, mostly about prison reform and spirituality, Elizabeth, too, wrote a book. According to The New Yorker, she sent the manuscript off to a publisher years ago, and they really liked it a lot. It's a 500-page novel, about an avant-garde artist who loses her legs in a ski accident, and it was called Memoir of a Phantom Leg. Hmm. 
When she was transferred to another prison, the publisher lost track of her. He also mentions the book. I'm sorry, it just doesn't sound like my cup of tea. He has several epigraphs, and they're all these like things about truth and stuff. Another recent article I read said they're both published authors, so maybe it's gotten published. I don't know, and I didn't bother to look. Nah. In any case, I hope it's better than it sounds, because it sounds absolutely awful. And yeah, I'm bitter. These people in prison are getting their shit. Not that I'm not published, but <laughs> fuck. Don't give any ideas. I know. The New Yorker writer and I do agree. Although on you would have time to write. I would have time to write. Believe me, I've fantasized about it. <laughs> the New York writer and I do agree on one thing. He says the crimes they were convicted for aren't the crimes that happened. That's for and sure. That's for sure. So that's my... Nice. And I think I gave most of my opinions during the course of the I just, thing. I, I don't have too much. I just, the, her family doesn't want him out because they don't want to admit that. From what I saw on the documentary, they had her a couple of her brothers... Her family does think she's a pathological liar, or know that she is, and it's not like they're thrilled with her, but I also don't think that they want to admit that she is probably the sole person. The, well, she and her drug dealer. The, yeah, pals. but it was her idea. Yeah. It's easier to like try to and blame that she was at the man. scene. Yeah, and that she was at the scene. And the impression you get from the German documentary more so than anything I've read or anything, they do a really good job of depicting the social strata. Yes. And the, he was an the, outsider. And Oh, I think it was obvious, and I know that that documentary, the German one, had, had a point of view. Well, she wouldn't talk Yeah, to them. she wouldn't talk, and also the German. And My theory of what happened was, he was just a dupe that she, it, for an alibi. Maybe she didn't start out thinking, I'm going to pin it on him. Maybe she just figured... This is going to happen. It's going to look like someone broke in and killed them. But when she started to get sucked in and when they took off like that, then she made it up her mind that he was going to take the fall. And she probably convinced him, look, it's not going to be that bad. And he believed her because... I don't know, and obviously nobody ever will, if she first made contact with him because she was playing a very long con but he was very different from her other boyfriends who had all been kind of bad boy drug dealer types and she'd had a lot of girlfriends why target why quote-unquote fall in love with this kid and i'm not saying it's not possible but she was sleeping with other people. She was obviously using him from the start. Maybe that's just how well, that's she had thinking. fun. Maybe she just liked to have people around that she never know what she's going to use them but for. She, but, but she also, she and it's like, yeah, it sounds like the narrative started very early in yeah. their friendship about how awful her parents was, yes. were and how she'd like to kill them. Yes. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that someone, Although, people can wait a very long time to carry out something like that. But I was going to say, people like... And maybe she didn't know exactly how it would go well, down. Uh, that says there have been cases similar to hers where somebody has convinced somebody else to either Pam help them smart. or kill someone. Pam Smart or like Gypsy Rose. Right. The Munchausen mom. Yes, is, I know what you're talking about. But there's also people that you hear about them. They have approached more than one person talking about like oh my wife i can't stand my wife right and they blah, finally blah, blah. find my husband the person is beating me or blah right. blah blah so it's not like he was the only one right but i'm sure other people probably just and also like again yeah, she said that to me too they and also, the cops. and also i was thinking too while well, thinking about all this 
maybe at some point she realized, you know, shit, little Jan isn't going to kill them for me after all. Yeah. He just doesn't yeah. have it in him, but I can use him. Yeah. You know, people who are very manipulative have a radar for people yes. who will do their bidding. Of course they do. And obviously the thought that she'd like her parents dead, it certainly played a part in her, I mean... Who writes letters to people? Remember the question I asked. She probably said it to people all the time. When we saw this in the docu- at, at the documentary and they had that panel about, you know, false convictions and stuff. And the question I asked, and it's still a question I'd love to talk to somebody about someday, is has our understanding of how the human brain works and human behavior evolved enough that this would have had a different outcome. And like Chuck Reed, one of the cops, here's an interesting thing. When he talked to the New Yorker guy, and the New Yorker guy seems to resent this a little, he was a little ambiguous about whether he thought Jans did it or not and said, well, I don't think we really had the evidence, you know, since the footprint evidence and the blood evidence shows he didn't do it. We don't have the evidence to tie him to it. But then a year later, I think the documentary first came out in 2016, he wrote a letter to and I'm not totally sure who, it may have been the governor of Virginia or something, saying I was one of the investigators on the case. I think we got the wrong guy and he should be pardoned or paroled. He supports the parole and he now no longer thinks Jans did it. It's another case of people making assumptions about human behavior that aren't based on how humans really behave. Well, it's based on... And try to make the evidence fit what they want. If she had been a guy, I'm not sure she would have gotten the giant pass. I mean, granted, yes, she was convicted of 90 years for accessory after the fact, or before the fact, but she was on the scene. Her blood shows and fingerprint shows she was on the scene. The other thing is, though, she was from that era, even though she, you know, she didn't sound like it, but but her family was from the area, and he wasn't. Yeah. Right. And the theme of him not being socially acceptable to the family is clear in everything you read. That's Why would they the, even care? Yeah. But he wasn't a drug dealer. They should have been fucking happy. Well, that's what he said. In fact, he said the like, one the fuck? In, in his interview. And again, he was a naive kid who probably couldn't read signals well. But the one time he met them, they went out to lunch and he thought it went well. He said we weren't best friends at the end of it. But he and Nancy were talking about, I think, photography or something. And he got on. And then I read it. Another, another article, I think it was the New Yorker one, a week later, a niece went to visit the Haysoms and they were still talking about how weird he was and the weirdness of the lunch. But Jan said in his YouTube interview, and I keep calling it that because I don't know who was doing the interview, that you'd think they'd be glad because she'd been going out with drug dealers and, you know, dropouts and all these people. And here he was this school kid who didn't drink didn't smoke didn't do drugs you know well and their friend's uh, son or their their social equals was a drug dealer, was a drug dealer well so it's just you know story. anyway so, so should we do our recommendations yes okay <laughs> Our recommendations yeah. are special NNW, NNW rating system. Negative Nellie's watching. Right, and you have something different today. Well, a lot of times we do true crime. Different-ish. We'll, or we'll do crime stuff. That's because it's crime and stuff. Yeah. But we also recommend things that aren't crime-related. 
We do. So I'm going to do, because I went to the movies with Hannah Friday, we went to see A Wrinkle in Time, which she wanted to see. Yeah. Those of you who aren't familiar with the story, I uh, can give you a very short version. And I actually have just reread the book because I knew the movie was coming out. And I was like, I love that book. And I read it several times when I was a tween. I'm not much into sci-fi fantasy as an adult, but I did like that book. I actually hadn't finished rereading it, and I just finished this weekend after I saw the movie. But the story is Meg, in the book she's 12, in the movie she's slightly older, probably like 14, is uh, the daughter of two scientists. She has a younger brother who is very precocious and is some kind of child prodigy, smartness-wise, and he has some kind of ESP shit. I don't know. Wow. His name's Charles Wallace. In the book, they have twin brothers who are in between. They're like 10, but in the movie, they're non-existent. So her father disappears. It turns out he and the mother are working on some project where they can travel through space instantly and they call it tesseract and um, the father has apparently figured out how to do it and he's been gone for four years and then these weird women show up they're there to help meg and charles wallace go find the father he's on some faraway planet wow. and they're going to test her there and they go and ultimately save him so that's the story all right spoiler alert yeah instead of bad reenactments what i decided to to use and this is the only thing I really had to change, was true to the source material. Because I had read the book, and it is based on a book. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, And it is not true to the source material. I've heard a lot of criticism about the casting. I don't have any problem with that. Meg is an African-American girl, or she's mixed ethnicity. She's a little older, which um, the father is Chris Pine, who I was initially like, look, he's white, good-looking guy. He's okay. He, he kind of actually went along with the movie Father. Charles Wallace is he looks like he's Asian. In the movie, I think both Meg and Charles, I know that Charles Wallace is adopted. Meg, they made it sound like she is also, the way they talked about it. In the book, they're not. I don't think that they needed to have them be adopted. It could have either have been them trying to explain the missed ethnicity, well, or it could have been them trying to be inclusive about adoption. Maybe. I also feel like the little actor, because Charles Wallace is six years old, and the kid, he's very small, so maybe he's small for his age, kind of like Gary Coleman type of thing. Mm. Those of you who are older will know who he is. What um, you talking about, Will? <laughs> <laughs> but um, he is a very good actor. And he is probably one of the better things about the movie because in the book, I find that character extremely annoying. Um, but in the movie, he's he's much easier for me to take. The other thing about the casting is they have the three women. Reese Witherspoon plays Mrs. Watsit. She's the one that's on there the most. They're all old women in the book. In the movie, obviously, Reese Witherspoon is not old. She's this glamorous thing. That's fine. That doesn't bother me. They do kind of stick to their roles. Hollywood. Yeah. Nobody um, can be on Mindy Kaling plays Mrs. Pooh, and then Mrs. Witch is Oprah. In the book, Mrs. Witch, we're unable to really see her very well. She can't make herself into a tangible being that you can actually see. She's kind of a shimmery thing. I didn't have a problem, though, with the way they did those. What I did have a problem with is, we're talking about, like, from this book to the movie, that really fucking annoyed me. There's one scene in the book that I remember, and part of it is because the book I had had this character on the front cover. Mrs. Whatsit turns into a centaur-type Pegasus thing with rainbow 
wings. The kids ride this being down to the area that they're going on this planet, the first planet they land on. Mrs. Whatsit transforms herself into this thing so they can fly down to wherever they have to go. In the movie, for some inexplicable reason, she does not change into a centaur with rainbow rainbow wings. She changes into this fucking lettuce leaf with an artichoke head, and they fly on that. Now, why the fuck? Why? Maybe they were trying to get good nutrition in. I would have accepted almost any other really cool creature. And no offense, I like artichokes and lettuce and all that <laughs> shit. But I don't. I did not understand it at all. I don't understand. Maybe it, it was just too hard. For so them I'm to taking create. a negative one. Okay. So narrative cliches. There are too many in this movie. The wow. book does not have that many. This movie has a lot of tropes. They're in all sorts of movies for this age. There are mean girls in the uh, school, and in the book there were people saying shit to her because her father was gone for four years. I grant that, but it was just very cliche. Calvin's dad in the book. Oh, Calvin. I didn't talk about Calvin. I'm sorry. Calvin is a neighbor boy who joins them on their journey. He also has some ESP shit going on like Charles Wallace, and he is a helper, and he and Meg have a pseudo-romance. In the book, he's from a large family. It's not a very happy family, Mm. and he's kind of abused and treated like shit by, I think, his mother in the book. Well, in the movie... It looks like he's by himself. His father's some executive type haranguing him because he's never going to amount to anything. It's very cliche and very annoying. It's just a bunch of fucking every movie you've seen cliches. If it was part of the book, I'd say, okay, I know this is cliche, but the book was written in 62. No, it's not. It has nothing to do with it. Why couldn't he be in a big family? Is it like bad now to criticize someone from a large So I'm giving it negative one for that. Okay. Racial gender obtuseness. Now you would think think that this movie has been lauded because of the the diversity and the only reason I'm giving only half off is because of this they mix it up a lot like I said Charles Wallace he looks Asian they've got the you know black Meg and mother they have the white Calvin and dad the happy medium in the book is a woman and this is and I don't have a problem with a guy playing the happy medium the scene is pretty similar to the scene in the book but it's played by um Zach Galifianakis is that how he yeah says name? yeah that's close you know who he is everybody Hannah goes mommy he has a man bun but his <laughs> scene doesn't bother me that much but the one thing that bugged the fucking shit out of me is in the book the mother is a scientist and in the movie she is also a scientist but the book she is a much bigger character in the movie she is the same movie mom wife that is in every fucking movie where she doesn't do anything hardly at all Mm -hmm. doesn't say much hardly at all just worries and frets and is in the beginning and the end maybe they felt they had too many women already with all the misses what's it's and stuff yeah but the book they have them all i know but i gave it a negative half a point there was a lot of diversity in the movie yeah but the gender obtuseness annoyed the shit yeah that's just as important lack of good visuals how Um, did it look was it a good looking it was good missing pieces negative one yes much of the plot is missing there is a scene that's very very important to the storyline there's a planet they go to after they go to the bad place to get the father it was a very important part and that's totally not in the movie and i understand 
that when they had to write the screenplay, they didn't want it to be too long, but there is a lot missing, and I'm giving it negative one because there didn't need to be as much missing as... I think, as with a lot of these sci-fi movies, they rely more on special effects and and stuff like that. There are a lot of scenes that are way too long because they're showing all these cool special effects that the plot suffered. Inaccuracy, anachronisms, that doesn't really... It's a sci-fi fantasy. Uh, Storytelling. I think it was okay if you hadn't read the book. The storytelling was uneven the first half hour was way too fucking slow and hannah was getting very restless and i know she's only seven but i was getting restless too Mm -hmm. they didn't need to spend that much time on the exposition in the book they don't spend that ratio of time on setting things up and the action could have happened a lot sooner and they could have had more scenes in there. They did not. I thought it wrapped up too quickly at the end and they left out that scene. So I'm not taking a point off, but I thought they could have done better. Freshness, negative one. Too many movie cliches, too many tropes. Um, The casting is fresh. I thought it was good, but I don't have any problem with updating. Like I said, the book was written in 1962. I thought Meg, the girl that played Meg, was very good. All the acting was very, very good. good. Um, Beating the drum, kind of. And the thing is, the theme of the book and the scene they left out is showing that love and being kind can overcome bad it's a good versus evil story you know so in the movie the theme is be one with the universe which they beat the drum about but that wasn't really the theme of the book it just wasn't there's a character in the book that meg calls ant beast and what happens is when they come back from that bad planet um they get stuck on this planet the things that are there they have these tentacles and stuff and they can't really see they can intuit things and they're more evolved apparently than humans but they take care of her because she when she travels through time and space she gets takes it worse than the other people so she was having a hard time recovering and so this one creature helps her she doesn't understand the concept of names but meg calls her aunt beast and teaches her the thing about meg through the whole book is she's very bitter about her father abandoning them and and she's 12 I mean, she's you know she learns to be kinder and all this stuff through this creature helps her so i felt like that that was important and maybe they didn't want to deal with having to depict that but i just felt like if you're not going to try to do the movie that it was almost like they wanted to do this big dazzling thing with oprah reese witherspoon and minnie kaling wow look at them and then the rest of it was like yeah "Yeah." so what's your final score my final score is five and a half wow and i'm not going to say don't see it Right. I mean, but don't. I see. If you read the book, you're gonna have some quibbles if you can remember. I a feel lot of like the book. I would never tell anybody to see or not see something because no. everybody's different. But they can base their our NNW rating and what we said and decide for themselves yes. if we're full of shit or not. Yeah, you probably think we are, but you know. But no, you know, I, I mean, I thought it was good. Your I own didn't just system. like it. Hannah liked it. She hasn't read the book. Yeah. So now, what was yours? Well, mine is totally different in a lot of ways. Wormwood. Oh, yes. The Errol Morris documentary about a scientist, Frank Olson, who worked for the Army, who was thought to have committed suicide by jumping out of a New York hotel room in 1954. And it turns out it was all part of this big CIA cover-up. And it's told through the eyes of his son, who was eight when he died. And so now you do the math. 
Uh, and it's an interview with him combined with, I'm not even going to call them reenact, combined with a movie. Dramatizations. Yeah. Although that even makes it sound, Peter Sarsgaard, who's an actor I've always liked, plays Frank Olson. It's, Molly, what's her face? Molly Parker plays the mother. And it combines that with archival footage, newspaper clippings, the parts with Peter Sarsgaard and the other 50s guys, CIA guys and stuff, are the speculation and yes. the the archival footage and stuff is pretty much what happened to some extent. And the documentary, I think it's six it's six parts parts, is more about And it's on Netflix. Yes. Is more about Eric Olson, the son's journey. Yes. Than about what really happened. And you're not even sure by the end, spoiler alert, what really happened, but you know a lot of stuff that did happen. Mm-hmm. And so I'll go through my rating. Reenactments. If I'm watching some crappy true crime thing on TV and they have excessive reenactments, it drives me crazy to the point where I almost don't watch. And that's one of the reasons I almost didn't watch this. So I decided to watch it because I'd heard them talking about it on Real Crime Profiles which is another podcast I listen to. And from their conversation, I thought, you know, that sounds like something I want to listen to. There are are a lot of metaphoric and stylized things. The room Eric Olson is sitting in while he's interviewed has a clock that's always at 2.35 because that's the time his father died. And so it's like his life stopped when he was eight years old. And it's been this obsessive, I don't know if you want to call it crusade, to find out what happened. The reenactments are very, very good. They're very stylized 50s with wallpaper and clothing and stuff, but it's cool. And I think part of that is to make you realize you are in this reenactment, that this is, and it's understated. Yeah. And Peter Sarsgaard and Molly Parker are both very good. Everybody's good. So the reenactments keeps their point. The next thing, narrative cliches. This is this guy telling his story and other people telling the story. And so it's based on people's perceptions. So I didn't find any narrative cliches. No, and even with the guy being interviewed, the son, he didn't, like a lot of times... He was great. The people they're interviewing will have cliches. And he wasn't. He He was great. Very, very interesting man. uh, Racial, um, gender obtuseness, no. Because again, it it was what it was. There were hints like gender things, like after the husband dies... The CIA boss or the army boss coming over to have cocktails with the mother and you kind of wonder what's going on and it was very vague and they did it well. So I thought that was good. I mean, there's a lot of racial diversity, no, but this, isn't. but it's the nature of the story that there, there wasn't. Sorry. Right. It's the nature of the story that there wouldn't be. Lack of good visuals. It had great visuals. I thought it was yes. really coolly filmed. I thought even the interview parts where Eric Olson is talking to Errol Morris were good. You know, they did some of that stuff where the camera would linger on some random thing that, you know, kind of (laughs) bugs me. But even that didn't bother me that much because I felt like everything was a little bit of a metaphor for what was going on. So that was good. Missing pieces. And there weren't a lot. It was a very complicated story to tell. But, But for instance, Eric Olson, the son, is brilliant and apparently got a PhD and does something, some groundbreaking stuff concerning collage. Yeah, he does collage. He's a psychologist and I think it's some kind of like a kind of like art. Right. Type of but they never no, they don't clarify. There's references to it, and they use his collages yeah. 
and the collage imagery in general is part of the storytelling and it's really neat, but I would like to know more about... One good thing is this doesn't have a lot of details that don't have anything to do with story. On the other hand, just a little bit more about what yeah. he was doing and also a little bit more... I had heard, thought I heard a reference somewhere else about his sons wondering why they're so obsessed, but I didn't see anything in this about... I mean, he refers to a girlfriend here and there and stuff, but I didn't see anything about his own family, so I don't know where that came from. Maybe a little bit more about his family, because I think that would have... his brother's on a little bit, but not a lot. Yes, because I think that would have helped give more context to his obsession and that his he spent his life doing that so i took away half a point for missing pieces inaccuracies and anachronisms no i thought the 1950s obviously i wasn't around then but they made a great effort not only for things to look 1950s but one of our favorite things for people to not use phrases yeah they talk from 2011 nobody was calling anybody dude or saying you don't get to blah 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 (laughs) or any of those things that people weren't saying in the 50s the storytelling was great they reeled it out the way i like you don't get all this exposition and stuff you have to pay attention though you have to you do have to pay attention and you know just here's a tip for everybody out there you should fucking pay attention. Yeah, no. When you're reading a book or watching something, pay fucking attention. I I never feel like, and I'm not saying you were saying this, but I never feel like <laughs> having to pay attention should be a criticism of something. No, no, and One thing no. that really bugs that me yeah. as an author, one thing that bugs me is with my books, when people have a criticism or ask a question that they obviously just weren't paying attention. Yeah. And that's, in fact, why I don't have a lot of people read my first drafts. Because I don't have time to parse critical reading with people who weren't paying attention. No shit. And the only reason I'm saying that is I'm getting to the end of this writing. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so the storytelling too, and the interspersement of the interviews with what happened and his perceptions of what was happening and the layered, like you'll see a scene one way and then later you'll see it another way. Yes. And as he learns more. Yes. Uh, it took me a while to figure that out because you're, at first you think, okay, they're just reenacting what happened. Then as you go along and it's the right. same kind of thing, but it's a little bit different than you Right. You so you have to, to use your you noggin. You get the rhythm of it. Yeah. I, and I give them credit because, yes. they're not, because no. they expect you yeah, they to expect follow you to along figure and out. figure yeah. it out. Which which and, you can. Which you can if you, if you pay attention. But the way they do it, too, is Errol Morris doesn't inject himself. You see him once in a while. You hear him ask questions, but it's not bothersome. The, it's not like Keith Moore. Oh, no. <laughs> Eric Olson does a great job. I don't know how long it took them to interview him, but he does a great job of explaining things. He's very insightful, and he's very... Like, he's a really good critical thinker, but he's also really articulate and colorful. He's interesting to watch. Freshness, yeah, it's a story that we haven't heard a lot about, told in a way that I haven't seen told. I mean, we've heard, the reason I didn't want to watch it until you kept it telling me it was good, I was like, I'm not interested in MK Ultra. Right, me shit. too. I but know. the thing is, it's a character-based... It's very good. Repetition, there's a lot of repetition, there is, but, but it's, it's all part of what the story like the is. the rhythm of the... The yeah. rhythm of the, because you think it's one thing, then yeah. you think it's another thing, and they'll show the same scene. And then scene. you're just like, oh, okay, I've seen this before. Right. And you're like, oh, no. No, but it's okay it's now. Almost, yeah, right, it's and like the scene yeah. of them sitting at the Thanksgiving table because mm-hmm. the father didn't come home. They show it in different ways at different times, and it has different meanings. So that was, I mean, it must have taken an incredible amount or of like time. like what happens before he 
plunges to his death. Yes, over and over, but different things. The repetition wasn't a bad thing. It was good. It helped tell the story. And beating the drum, Eric Olson's obviously very dismayed at the way the government works and the way they were jerked around by everybody from the CIA to the The Army to the President of the United States. Good old bland Jerry Jerry Ford. Who knew? We knew. But it doesn't hit you over the head, which is our beating the drum problem. He has a right to his feelings. His feelings are justified. And he doesn't overdo it. He's very... The way he tells it is he's not ranting and raving. Uh, The things he's angry about aren't necessarily those things, too. There are other things. He's mad at himself, even though he was an eight-year-old kid at the time. He's mad at himself for wasting his life, but doesn't see that he could have done it any other way. And then they focus on... So that's a 9.5. Yes. I didn't expect to like it as yeah, I like because of my antipathy for Errol Morris. I have to <laughs> separate that from what he does. And also, like you, CIA, MK Ultra, blah blah blah. None of that interests me. But what interests me are people and how they behave and why they do this. Also, spoiler alert: you never really get a definitive answer to what no. happened. But I think that's proper for this. So nine nine point five nice. on Wormwood. And that's something I didn't expect to like. I can't tell you how many times I passed over it on Me Netflix too. when I was watching for things and saying, Oh yeah, wait, that's the thing I don't want to watch. Yeah. And then I finally did and it was great. So that's our show for today. You can check us out at Crime and Stuff Online, our website, which has all our episodes and our More Stuff page, which I hope to update sometime soon. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review. Yeah, rate and review. Because that helps other people. You can also donate, which helps uh, pay for our equipment and stuff. On Patreon, there's donate buttons on our website. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook. If nothing else, when we have an episode up, because we're roughly every two weeks, but you never really know when it's going to happen, we post it on Facebook and tweet it out so if you follow us you'll know when we have a new episode and so till next time bye bye thanks for listening thanks uh tell me what you really think <laughs> somebody at work I, you know I do too because I, I feel like because like, I feel like the, I, am. I feel like the message is what you're saying is beyond the bounds of what should be said in a normal conversation yeah. or like you're overreacting and or... people are uncomfortable with it yep and what I always say I'm to people, you don't want to hear what I really think. It would blow your fucking <laughs> you mind. You can't handle the truth. Right.